people are thinking COVID has gone away and we're getting back to normal, but in the sort of international public health world, that's not the case at all. We're building new institutions, we're expanding institutions, and all the expansion is around pandemic preparedness and response. In this episode, I sit down with public health physician and Brownstone Institute fellow, Dr. David Bell, a former WHO medical officer. He recently published Pandemic Preparedness and the Road to International Fascism in the American Journal of Economics and Sociology. The hope of writing the paper is to try to get the public health world, who are very much on board with this and going forward with it, of stepping back and really thinking what they're doing, because they've repeatedly done huge harm to society over the last couple of hundred years, and it's clear that they're on that path again. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Dr. David Bell, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks. Uh, it's good to be here. <laughs> You have written a really interesting paper recently. I'm kind of, you know, shocked given the title that it actually got published in a, in a journal today. But more importantly than the title, um, it's, I think it paints an important picture that we should know about. And I, I, I want to discuss that paper today with you. So, yeah, it's, it's, Boy, it's really the way I, I see, but I think it's clear the way that public health has gone. And as a public health physician, it's disturbing to see what has happened, but it's not in many ways surprising. So, you know, it's um, about the path we're taking really to international fascism. And public health is playing a lead role in that through COVID and the pandemic preparedness agenda as we're on or chasing now. and. I'm trying to point out that this is not new, that this is expected historically. Um, you know, if we go back to the colonialist era, public health played a large role in justifying the sort of takeover of um, you know, the other populations in the colonial empires of Europe. You know, the pandemics played a big part in that. The forerunners to the WHO, the World Health Organization, were the Paris agreements and other agreements of the late 19th century around stopping pandemics coming from the colonies to Europe. And you know, we move on there to sort of the eugenics era of the 1920s and 30s and the overt European fascism where doctors were overrepresented in um, in the Nazis and also in Mussolini's fascism. No, we're facing an era of emergency rule, rule by decree, a very close sort of symbiosis of large corporations and government, which you know, is corporate authoritarianism, is Mussolini's really definition of fascism. We, we're seeing public health pushing this, we're seeing very strong um, you know, sort of coercion, etc., um, censorship and vilification of um, people who don't comply. This is all being pushed based on a, a series of lies and fallacies, which are obvious really. So it, it's sort of the classic fascist approach. And in the same way, it's concentrating wealth amongst these few that are orchestrating it. So the hope of writing the paper, and I think of us talking, is to try to get the public health world, who are very much on board with this and going forward with it, of stepping back and really thinking what they're doing, because they've repeatedly done huge harm to society over the last couple of hundred years. And 
it's clear that they're on that path again. And there's a number of reasons for that, why they comply that we can go into, but first they've got to, you know, face reality around them. Whenever you say the word fascism, yeah. you know, that's one of those... It's a trigger. Right, exactly. Yeah. You throw out the word and it can yeah. be used and you, no one ever wants to be called that. And it's used liberally, frankly, by, in, in inappropriate ways to basically demonize people. Yes. Right. So I, so I think we have to take extra uh, attention today to, to justify your, your statement. And, I mean, and again, that's why I'm saying I'm surprised that it was published with that concept. But you're, but you're yeah. very serious in your treatment of this. this. You're not throwing this word out casually. All the steps that you've seen in a, in a, in a, in a fascist model are being replicated. So what are those steps? Yeah, so first we, we see this very tight um, cooperation of large corporations and government. And I mean, that's been increasing over the last few years. In public health, it's very much, you know, it started off with these public-private partnerships. And, you know, it, it seemed good at the start. Um, fascism is a trigger, but it's also a real thing. I mean, it's a trigger because of what happened in the Second World War. But fascism dominated, you know, the whole technocracy movement, the eugenics movement of the 1920s and 30s. John Hopkins School of Public Health started off around eugenics. You know, this was mainstream public health. And it's the thought that all people are not equal, but you have an elite that will manage the rest for the greater good. And this is a sort of corporate slash government elite that work very closely together and that's people have forgotten but this was mainstream public health it was mainstream thinking in the 20s and 30s in north america for instance and then it, it became discredited and pushed aside for several decades after the war we associate fascism with the idea of black and white pictures of people in jackboots but in the 20s and 30s, this was the progressive way forward, you know, pushed by the large corporations and by high levels of government, by certain professions. And it's a very attractive way because it, the idea is the experts decide what the masses do. But where it leads is um, the forced sterilization of people who are considered inferior, etc. And this again was mainstream public health in North America not that long ago. And you know, other examples like that, and then it, it can go to the excesses that the Nazis took it. But it's, it's not people in jackboots breaking windows, it's a sort of progressive view pushed by wealthy people which will eventually benefit them. But we have to sort of see it with colour glasses and not with the black and white film of the 1930s and recognise you know, the progressive movement now is very much aligned with that, I think. So it's an easy place to fall into. It also arose very much from the left in those days, from the left of politics, as we call it now. It's a funny term, but... Um, that, that's interesting that you mention that, because you typically, typically people will juxtapose, will say, well, communism is the left and yeah. the fascism is the right. But you're saying that the fascism is actually a progressive movement. That's how it was seen, and that's how the New York Times saw it. It's how uh, Time magazine saw it. They had Hitler as Man of the Year in the 1930s. Uh, you know, right-left is a totalitarian way of viewing things. It, it's, I think it differs from classic communism in that 
you've got an elite who are dictating, whereas you know, supposedly in communism, all people are equal in fascism, they're not. Um, but in the end, it's a, a totalitarian approach. And I agree, it's interesting, and it's kudos to the journal that they, um, that they published the paper and with that name, and it shows that not all publishing is um, completely bought. I think that they are willing to publish a diversity of views, but if we stop and look at it, then we can start to look at where we're going and the pandemic preparedness agenda where we're, we're really co-opting public money for the benefit of private interests for a fallacy. Uh, you know, the idea that pandemics are an existential threat uh, they weren't in the 1990s uh, and we should be even better at it now. They haven't been since you know, the 1920 Spanish flu when we didn't have antibiotics and people died of secondary infections. So uh, people die, uh, you know, health-wise, they die of a whole lot of other diseases, um, heart disease, you know, cancer um, in other countries, tuberculosis, malaria, etc. The outbreaks, even Ebola and so on, these are a tiny fraction of life years lost of mortality. So the whole agenda now that pandemics are an existential threat, it's built on a fallacy. It's, not, it's simply not true historically. The only way it can be true is if we're going to have a whole series of lab leaks or releases of engineered viruses, because it's not going to happen naturally. So. If something is built on a fallacy like that, and it's so strongly pushed and taking over the agenda of health and of society, then you need to look at what is going on and why this is happening. It's not a normal way for humans to, or society to act to sort of massively overemphasize a threat. So then you look at who is gaining from this. And during the COVID outbreak where we had a virus that appears almost certainly engineered and probably accidentally released, but we don't know. Um, of hundreds of billions of dollars accumulated in the hands of a relatively few people. And these people and corporations were the ones who at the start of the COVID outbreak said we should throw away all prior public health knowledge from how we handle an outbreak which you know, WHO has published, we never lock down, we never do those things. To the idea that you know, the hundred or actually a couple of thousand years of knowledge of natural immunity is thrown out, etc. So all, all that was thrown out. We, we based, you know, we had a series of lies like natural immunity doesn't work against respiratory viruses, etc. And we had a virus that kills people at the average age of about 75 to 80, which we knew at the very start of 2020 from what happened in China. So we, these certain entities and people, they push very strongly that we lock down everyone in society, that we close businesses, that we, um, you know, we pretend that we have no defence against viruses naturally and that we have no medicinal defences against this virus even though you know things like vitamin D and so on are very basic and scientifically based you know they improve immune function which we use to fight viruses ourselves so and then in, inevitably in doing that we shifted wealth from all the people who used to work 
to the people who were gaining from these lockdowns, which was initially was very much software companies, and then as we shifted to mass vaccination with an injectable vaccine, which is we know already is not going to work very well against respiratory viruses. And Anthony Fauci published a paper in January of this year pointing out that we always knew that it wouldn't work. The net result then was a shift in hundreds of billions of dollars to the vaccine companies and their investors. So we have this situation where, you know, there's, there's no public health basis to this in orthodox public health. There's no scientific basis to what happened. So you have to look further. And it, it's a push to change society to a very different sort of fascist or feudalistic um, structure. A technocratic structure. A technocratic we... structure, which is tried in the 20s and 30s and is been trying again. And, you know, greed is a normal human trait and is very strong in all of us if we don't control it. And greed means you want to take stuff from other people for yourself and your betterment of yourself and maybe your family. If, if you have individuals who start to get the wealth of whole countries, which we've had over the last few decades, then if they, you know, this normal human trait will allow them to use those tools, which is enough money to buy governments and to buy media and to buy the software companies who will control the public discourse. And you'll use that for something like what happened with COVID to further increase your wealth because it's hard to find really wealthy people who don't want to get wealthier. So you envisioning a sort of constant state of health emergency to facilitate this yeah. transition or? Yes, and we have now this pandemic preparedness agenda, which, you know, people, people are thinking COVID has gone away and we're getting back to normal. But in the sort of international public health world, that's not the case at all. They're, they're, we're building new institutions, we're expanding institutions, and all the expansion is around pandemic preparedness and response. In a couple of weeks' time, the UN will be, the General Assembly will be releasing a communique on this which is, uh, in a way, is a classic issue of where the UN is. It's, it's all, it's about 30 pages of language around equity and children's rights and the importance of education, etc. by the people who've just closed, you know, schools in Uganda for two years and schools, you know, put hundreds of millions of children out of school um, and increased poverty, etc. But within that, it it's essentially says that we need to stop disinformation, i.e. censor people that pandemics and health emergencies are an existential threat and the world has to give more authority to the World Health Organization in particular and the UN generally to manage this. And the, the WHO is moving next May, they all um, change international health regulations, which most people still aren't aware of, but which have force under international law and that they'll be changing those to make them, rather than recommendations from the Director General of the WHO, the countries, by signing them, will be undertaking to implement these recommendations. So that they were under, that essentially making his recommendations the rule that they will follow. And they expand the idea of health emergency from demonstrated harm to a, anything that the World Health Organization or this individual considers a threat. Mm. And they expand it 
even beyond pandemics and viruses to anything like climate change or you know, this One Health agenda where anything in the environment or society that could harm human well-being in any way can be seen as a public health emergency. So out of that, it, it puts in place the ability to essentially have a permanent state of emergency, which we're sort of seeing anyway, if you look at the media over the, you know, even the last few months. The state of emergency will allow, and this is within the international health regulations and the treaty that's going with it, it will allow the essentially mandating things like border closures and quarantine and um, uh, mass vaccination, um, required medical examinations, etc., of the population. Essentially, the states will do this whenever the director of the World Health Organization says that they should. With these new variants of COVID, you know, Eris and Parola, that's what we're, what's out there right now. Yeah. I am seeing, you know, the sort of the, the fear narrative coming back, mm. not nearly as strong. And, it's, and I'm just very curious how you view that in light of everything you're talking about right now. I mean, to bring in something as stupid as this, you need fear because it's not rational. You know, it's not rational for us to be terrified of the next virus when we haven't really had a bad one since the 1920s. And, and even then, we, you know, most people went through it pretty normally. So it's not rational. You need fear to sort of work but, on but people's uh, minds. Let, let me to just get this, you to yeah. qualify what you said. But that's, I mean, that's not what a lot of people think. They don't think that, they think 1920 was extremely serious. And they think that mm. COVID actually, in the initial waves, you know, was actually extremely serious. We know, for instance, in parts of California, the, you know, where they've looked and done audits, the actual mortality reported is 40% lower than the official figures. We know that early on, the way that patients were managed had a significant impact on mortality. So in New York, about 85-90% of people who were intubated didn't get off the, you know, the, intub the ventilator, they died. And you know, that's not surprising if you have frail old people who have respiratory disease, you intubate them and paralyze them, there's a very high mortality. So the, part of the mortality is the way that we manage. Um, part of it is people dying of other reasons. Part of it is people actually dying of, from COVID, which was a significant disease, but mainly for very old people or quite old people who had other comorbidities such as diabetes, you know, severe, severe obesity, etc. So for, in that high risk group, it was a significant disease. For the rest of the, you know, for young college students who are now being locked down again in some colleges, it's less than one in a million healthy college students would be expected to, to die and probably significantly less than that. So for the vast majority of the population, it isn't much different than the flu. And if you look at a global, on a global basis, it was around 1.15%, which is about one and a half per thousand people probably died with the virus. That shouldn't qualify as a giant health emergency. A number of things went out the window in early 2020. One was in public health, the way that we look at disease burden. And we look at life years lost classically. Almost everyone in society would agree with this. If a five-year-old child dies of pneumonia or malaria or something like that, they, they lose 70 years of life. It's a, 
a tragedy. If an 85 year old dies who is already sick, they probably lose six months to a year. It's also a tragedy. But if you're going to put resources into malaria or childhood pneumonia or 85 year old with a, for who's very sick, has six months to live and gets a respiratory virus, where are you going to put your resources? So the, the bigger burden of disease is in the children, you would put your resources there. It doesn't mean one life is more important than the other, but you're talking about how can we use resources most effectively. COVID was a real disease. It affected people. Some people died from it. We put measures in place that we know will increase poverty. We know that poverty shortens life expectancy. We know that closing clinics that screen for cancer will increase cancer deaths. That's why we screen for cancer, to reduce them. We know that making people scared to go to the hospital when they have a chest pain will increase heart mortality. And we know in other countries that closing the clinics will in increase tuberculosis, malaria, etc. So we try to make these balances. We have a, a rel relatively minor disease and we have these major diseases that kill most people. And even during the height of COVID in America, in, yeah, in the United States, cancer and heart disease were killing more people than COVID and at an average younger age. So you don't make them worse mm -hmm. to address the minor, the, the relatively minor issue. We pretended, and the World Health Organization essentially pretended as well, that the one thing that mattered was this virus. And this virus was doing far less harm than a whole range of other diseases that we normally cope with every day. So, yes, in that it was, it was certainly a grossly exaggerated threat. And we have done undoubtedly net harm to health by concentrating on that, which is at the expense of everything else. And the vaccine is an example where the world has spent about $10 billion on you know, trying to vaccinate 70% of the whole world. We spend $3.5 billion every year on malaria, that's it. Um, and it kills over half a million children every year. So in life years lost in disease burden, malaria is far worse than COVID globally, but we're putting three times more resources just in the COVID vaccine, leaving everything else aside. With the pandemic preparedness agenda, so now we're putting in place a system to try to stop the next pandemic, which, you know, historically we'd expect in a couple of hundred years time perhaps, but we're being told could come at any moment. So the World Health Organization and the World Bank and others advocating that we put in about, it's about $31.5 billion a year. And 10.5 billion of that will be new money. And this is, this is, we're on the road to this now. And these treaties, it will be public money. It's taxpayers' money from people who are getting poorer. It's going to fund a huge surveillance network, which is now being put in place. And every country will be checked every two years, inspected, and there'll be a report on how well, so there's a whole bureaucracy being funded for this. They will find variants because it's normal to find viral variants, this is nature. They will then have the power to say, this is a potential threat, so we'll lock down this country or this series of countries, we'll close the borders, we'll impoverish the people, we'll keep them there, while we make a 100-day vaccine, which 
billions of dollars are going into the 100-day vaccine program, it'll be mRNA vaccine, will then mandate or coerce the population to take that as a, a way of getting out of the lockdowns that we've just put on them so that they can get back to their families, get back to their businesses. So they will take the vaccine and this will put a few hundred billion dollars more in the pockets of these companies who are involved in running this whole network. So it's a sort of self-perpetuating way of concentrating wealth and it's for this very, very small disease burden. And it'll be at the expense of all the other public health priorities which actually kill people. But we are being sold this as if this is essential for the future of human society and the human race, which we have, it, it, you know, if you tell a lie enough times, people will believe it. And we have white papers from the WHO, from the World Bank, from the UN, Wellcome Trust and elsewhere that just state um, categorically in their introductions, uh, pandemics are becoming more frequent and more severe. You know, it's a fallacy, it's wrong. It, it has no historical basis, but... It's like we're forgetting or we're conveniently forgetting, you know, history, uh, yeah. public health, um, you know, epidemiology to some extent. Yeah. I mean, and, it's, and you're saying in the name of uh, some sort of fascist impetus? Well, so how do you explain this? And, you know, some people say it's some sort of Marxist takeover. I, I sort of, I mean, we can fiddle around with words. It's, uh, there are some huge beneficiaries, a relatively small part of society that is benefiting, whereas most are both being impoverished and losing their basic human rights in the process. Uh, it, it's a, this tie-in of corporations and government that is doing this, that is running this. And you know, it's funny when we talk about national governments, but you know, as Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum said, you know, he has penetrated, was his word, the cabinets of he lists a whole bunch of countries. And a lot of our leaders now are from the World Economic Forum, um, Young Global Leaders Program, etc. So when we talk about countries now, we're sort of talking about a level of people who are working together in this corporate club. Um, so we're seeing with that they're increasing censorship of the media and we, you know, we're seeing a pushback now in America with the court cases, etc., around what's happened to Google and Facebook and Twitter and so on. Um, and we're seeing this this vilification of people in society, you know, pandemic of the unvaccinated and these people killing your grandma, etc. Um, and, okay, these fit a fascist mould. Um, you, can, you can find another mould for them to fit, but it's useful to put this label on them, I think, to wake people up and make people think about it. And you don't use these words lightly, mm -hmm. but you also, you know, you don't avoid them if it's in front of your face. You have to sort of call a spade a spade, as we'd say in Australia. And um, if we start doing that, then we can start trying to undo what's happening. Well, so is that for what it is and acting on it somehow? And acting on it, yeah, exactly. And acting on it can mean a number of things. Uh, it can start by just not complying with stupidity. This working relies on people 
putting on a mask whenever they're told to, which you know shows their compliance. You know, if you walk down the street where everyone's masked, you think very differently than if you walk down the street where you can see people smiling. So if you put on a mask at the door of a restaurant and you take it off at the table, you know that's an idiotic thing to do. You're just showing that you're complying with the authority of these people who just made hundreds of billions of dollars out of your increasing poverty. So you can do that or you can say, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm a sovereign individual, the government's there to serve me in the end at my behest and not to tell me what to do. You know, fascist and totalitarian regimes, they, they rely on compliance in order to work. But from the public health point of view, people have, you know, my profession, we've got to go back to looking objectively at disease burden, looking at, at history, at the basics of, you know, immunology 101, etc. If you impoverish people, you're in, you shorten life expectancy, you increase mortality. Um, this, is, this is very well demonstrated. Uh, we know that if you damage economies, that you increase mortality, and especially in low-income countries. So, but we have done this. I mean, we've, we've pushed girls into child marriage. We've increased child labor. We've done all sorts of things over the last few years. We know that they're all very harmful from a public health point of view. So we're sort of coping with it by putting out these memos that say equity and inclusion and make it look as if we're thinking of that. But at the very same time, we're putting in these policies for a, a putative virus or a current variant which we know will make this far worse and which don't hold up from the point of view of disease burden. So, you know, the, the reason this is happening is because this is where the money is in global health. Um, it's in pandemic preparedness and it's there because the people who are managing the whole system will gain from that in the long run. But almost everyone doing it knows that this doesn't make sense. and they should know the history of public health doing this before and where that has led historically. Effectively, are you saying that the WHO is the kind of hub of some sort of global command and control system? I mean, the WHO, I think, mainly is a tool. It's not an organization trying to take over the world. It's being used by people who want to do that for their own benefit. So if you look at the, how the organisation should work. It should be there you know, to convene meetings between countries, facilitate exchange of ideas and exchange of information, and where countries ask for help, it's there to help. Now, China has 1.3 billion people. It's a large chunk of the world's population, so it should have a significant influence, um, you know, fairly, if you look at the population size. So should India, so should, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa should be a large part of that, etc. But that's completely different than having an organisation that can direct and can tell people in the country, you know, that they should be locked down, they should be mandated a vaccine, etc. That is a sovereignty issue. Mm. And the, the WHO and the UN shouldn't even be there in the first place. If we look at the WHO, it is significantly funded by private interests. And the second largest funder is private of the organisation. And that funder has significant 
pharma investments, etc. So clearly there's a conflict of interest. You wouldn't want that entity deciding on you know, who should have what drug in a country. Um, it's funded by certain countries and you know, it's the United States and Germany are the big ones who are very big in the drug industry. And nearly all of their funding and all of the private funding is directed, which means they don't give it to the WHO so the WHO can decide what's best for the world. They give it to the WHO to do a specific task that they say. And it'll even come to you employ these people, you'll have these meetings in these places. So it's very directed funding and the WHO is just a tool that they're using with their funding to get something which they want. That can be good, it can be bad. But again, you would not let that organisation in a democratic society have any power over your people. It would be completely irrational to do that. A country like the US has far more expertise on infectious disease within its borders, obviously, than the bureaucracy in the WHO, which, you know, you're not there just because you're an expert. It's not a pool of expertise. It's a pool of bureaucrats who are there to manage coordination of certain aspects of health internationally. So again, it wouldn't make, and if you look at their track record um, over COVID and the changes and you know, even not understanding immunity apparently, not understanding how masks work, not understanding that the virus was almost all in old people and not in young people, not understanding that if you close schools and massively damage the education of hundreds of millions of children, you'll push them further into poverty and so have bad health effects on them and on their country. If you don't understand that, you've proven that you're not competent to give public health instruction to countries. So again, it's completely illogical to go down the path we are going at the moment, where we give more power to this organisation to tell to and control over our own health policy. Well, Dr. David Bell, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thanks, Jan. Thank you all for joining Dr. David Bell and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. Mm -hmm.